0: Um, Would you please stand with me as we read God's word? After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of who he was speaking, whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, "Lord, who is it?" Jesus answered, "It is he to him I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it." So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then when he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said, he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the son of man glorified, and God is glorified in him. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said to him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but, I will, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can, I not follow, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. Thank you for this church, for gathering us here. And we pray for Pastor Matt as he brings your word. Spirit, move in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Pastor Matt's taking a week off. (laughs) We're continuing our sermon series, looking at loved. It's uh, our Lent series. We're in John 13, as we just read here this morning. And uh, just as Jesus predicted, immediately after this passage takes place, Judas goes out and betrays Jesus by working with the Jewish chief priests to have Jesus arrested and also, just as Jesus foretold here in this passage, Peter, after this event, once he sees that Jesus is arrested, he denies uh, Jesus and disavows himself of Jesus three times. And uh, the interesting thing, though, about each of these betrayals, as we look today and kind of contrast Peter versus Judas, the interesting thing is that the outcomes Uh, for these betrayals were very, very different. When Judas faced the realities of what he had done, it led him to despair and ultimately suicide. But when Peter faced the realities of what he had done, eventually it led him to a kind of repentance and restoration with Jesus. And then Peter served as a proclaimer of Jesus Uh, and the gospel until the day that he died. And so the question that I have is when we look at Peter and Judas is this, what led to these radically different outcomes? Two disciples of Jesus, both sinners, both betraying Jesus in their own way, and one comes out with repentance and serves Jesus until his dying day, and then the other takes his life in despair. What led to these outcomes and what does it mean for us? So let's go ahead and quickly take a look at the narrative first uh, and, and make sure that we understand that. So Jesus is in the upper room observing the Jewish Passover feast with his disciples. And uh, it says that Jesus in, the, in that first verse is, uh, is troubled in his spirit, which is another way to say he's broken hearted. He's grieved to his core. And he says to them, One of you is going to betray me. And so all of the disciples start kind of looking at each other like, Who is it? Isn't that fascinating? Like they had no idea, right? Nobody was like, Oh gosh, we know who it is. It's Judas, right? They had no idea. And so Jesus is sitting at the table. Again, it's the Passover feast. And to his left and to his right are the positions of honor. And Judas is actually in the foremost position of honor. That's really important. He's in the seat of honor, and in the other seat of honor is the Apostle John. And so when all, when Jesus says this, uh, and they're all kind of murmuring like, "Who is it? Who is it?" Uh, Peter, who's sitting next to John, uh, whispers to John and is kind of like, Psst, "Hey." you're sitting next to Jesus, you're close to him, find out who it is, right? Because I think Peter kind of fancies himself to be a guy of action, right? Peter's always the one to leap into action. And so I'm sure that Peter is thinking, well, man, if G- Jesus knows who this betrayer is, let me find out about that now and, and I'll, we'll just take care of it right here and right now, right? Uh, that's kind of, I'm sure what Peter is, is thinking. And so John whispers to Jesus, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one whom I will give this bread after I have dipped it. it." And so Jesus takes the bread and he dips it into this very traditional, it's kind of a a wine and fruit dip. And so Jesus takes the bread and he dips it into this wine dip and then gives it to Judas, which by the way, was also an act of honor. For, For Jesus to dip that bread and then give Judas the first Piece of the meal was was a double act of honor. Everyone at the table would have assumed when they saw that. I mean, come on, Jesus, is Judas is clearly your favorite. Like you put him in the seat of honor, you give him the first piece of the bread. Clearly. Judas is Jesus's favorite. That's what they all would have been thinking. They all would have thought Jesus loves Judas more than he loves the rest of us. That would have very well have been one of the ways in which they could have interpreted this. So no no doubt, Peter and John, who are the only ones kind of on the inside that would have had any possible clue that it was Judas, were probably confused. You know, Peter, who was so quick to jump into action normally, probably is like, well, wait a second, John's saying that Judas is the betrayer? This doesn't make any sense. Jesus is, like, honoring him. Like, Judas is the one that seems to be the most favorite. Like, I'm sure that they were thinking, like, is Jesus speaking in some sort of one of those metaphorical, like, parable things that he's always doing? Like is that what Jesus is doing? There was there was there was probably confusion on their part because of how much Jesus was publicly loving and affirming Judas, and so they so they remain silent, albeit probably uh, confused. Judas gets up from the table then after eating and having a quick discussion with Jesus that they kind of overhear a little bit of. And uh, he leaves, and everyone just assumes that Judas is leaving to go run some sort of errand because Judas was their treasure. He's the one who had the money for the group. And then uh, after Judas leaves, uh, Jesus begins to make all these strange cryptic statements about how now is the time where they will see him glorified, about how he's going to a place where they can't go. Uh, He says that they should love each other as he has loved them. And, and, you know, at this point, Peter kind of interrupts Jesus's kind of uh, parting words, as it were. Uh, Peter kind of interrupts him and is like, wait, Jesus, what is going on here? What do you mean we can't go with you? Jesus, I'll go with you, even if it's dangerous. I will go with you and follow you to the death. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows you'll deny me three times. And that's, that's where our text uh, ends here today. But uh, I wanna discuss motivations first because I know that as I approached this text, I was very curious, like what was driving Peter and Judas? Like what were their motivations? Um, and we could possibly get very much sidetracked in our heads because of that. So I just wanna address that briefly. Uh, the short answer is that when it comes to Judas, we don't know. The scriptures are not clear as to what the motivations of Judas were. It could have been pure greed. Uh, We know that Judas was paid in silver for his betrayal. So there had been an exchange of money for it. So it could have been pure greed. We know that Judas had been skimming from the money bags that the disciples had. He had been taking money. We know that Judas got really angry uh, when the woman... uh, broke open that jar of ointment and poured it out on Jesus's feet. Judas was upset and, and he had said, oh, we should give that to the poor. But the text says that, well, he didn't really mean that they, he wanted to give it to the poor. He was hoping to maybe have sold that to skim some of that. So Judas, there was this element of greed and it could have certainly have been greed that motivated Judas. But most scholars actually believe that it was probably politically motivated. Uh, that he was frustrated with Jesus's lack of political ambition, as all of the disciples were. They wanted Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom. They had argued among themselves about which one of them was going to be the most important in his earthly kingdom, who would get to sit on his left and on his right. And so it's possible that, G, that Judas thought that if he got the authorities, to begin to come after Jesus personally, that Jesus might become a little bit more defensive and more politically involved and engaged. But ultimately, we don't know. What what we do know is this. What is evident from the text is this. There was something about Jesus that Judas didn't like. Something about his agenda. Judas wasn't bought into the whole person of Christ. He was bought into what Jesus could somehow and in some way accomplish for him. He saw Jesus as a means to an end, not the end himself. And for Peter, his motivation was simply fear. He betrayed Jesus because he saw Jesus get arrested and beaten And he denied Jesus because he thought, well, if they'll do that to him, they could do that to me. And so he disavowed himself of Jesus, disavowed that he even knew who Jesus was in order to escape uh, a possible outcome that was similar to Jesus. Now, here's the thing about both Judas and Peter. Again, I wanna remind you, both had walked daily with Jesus. They had experienced the actual presence of Christ. They had seen Jesus do miracles. They had seen Jesus loving others, loving them. They had seen Jesus show mercy and grace. Both had seen and experienced his beauty, his holiness, his wisdom, his joy, all of it. But only one, only one experienced repentance. Only one. And let's talk about why that is. First of all, I think there's three reasons. First of all, they trusted Jesus differently. They trusted Jesus differently. In Matthew 26, Matthew also um, has an account of this same event that we see in John 13. And Matthew adds something that clarifies this account in John. In Matthew's account, after Jesus had told them that one of them would betray him, Uh, Matthew writes that all of the disciples, all of the other 11 disciples, went up to Jesus one by one and would say something to the extent of, surely not I, Lord. Please tell me it's not me, Lord. But Matthew differentiates something that Judas does. He says that Judas went up to Jesus and said, surely it's not me, teacher, And that's the distinction that all scholars agree is extremely important. There was something about Judas that was holding back from declaring Jesus as Lord. Something that was holding Judas back from giving Jesus his complete loyalty and trust. He didn't trust Jesus to be the master of his life. He trusted Jesus to maybe be a good teacher, but even a good teacher can be fallible. He didn't trust Jesus all the way. There was something about Jesus he just simply didn't trust. Teacher versus Lord. There's actually a massive uh, relational and trust gap between those two. Judas was still in a place where he was saying to himself, yeah, I just think that Jesus could be wrong about some things. And before we you know, jump in and say, I would never do that, right? I would never question Jesus. He has my full trust. Before we get so naive about ourselves and about each other and and think that we would never uh, do that, I actually would submit to you that I think that we end up in that frame of mind a lot, a lot. We do that all the time. Or am I the only one? There have been a lot of times where I've doubted internally and said, I don't know if this makes a whole lot of sense, Jesus. God, what are you doing? I think you might be wrong on this one. Or We might not be that blatant about it. We might say internally, "Ah, if I was God, I think I might do it a little bit different. If I could control the outcomes, I think I would do it different." And, and here's the thing, listen, if, you're, if that's not true of you, in the most uncondemning way possible, if you've never had that, that test of your trust, if you've never been in the place where you thought, God, what are you, do, what are you doing, that time will come. That time will definitely come in your life. Your trust in Jesus will be challenged. Uh, I've gotten permission from my 16-year-old daughter, Summer, uh, to share this with you, um, This past year, my uh, daughter, Summer, was diagnosed with uh, an OCD disorder called trichotillomania. Uh, It's a compulsive hair-pulling disorder uh, in the same family as nail-biting, like compulsive nail-biting. But you compulsively pull your hair to the point of where uh, there's very large bald spots. It started several years ago, but the bald spots were manageable. They were small enough where she could cover them up. Um, but now if you see Summer, if you've seen her in the last year, you've seen her with a hat um, because the bald, stop, bald spots are like the size of my hands. And um, it's usually genetically acquired. Um, in, in my family, most of us bite our nails. And so again, that like kind of OCD of biting your nails can actually create like can, can, can become trichotillomania. And my wife actually uh, has an aunt who struggled with trichotillomania. And so Summer has had this misfortune of, gen, of genetics and has struggled with trichotillomania, especially in this last year, in a very debilitating way. And um, we're currently in treatment. Uh, it's a long process. Uh, it's probably going to be for her a lifelong battle, and I've wrestled with God on this. Not in a malicious way, but definitely struggling with trust. Like God, why would you do this to my little girl? She didn't deserve this. She, doesn't, she didn't ask for this. She's a 16-year-old girl. Do you know how important beautiful hair is to a 16-year-old girl? Why are you doing this? What are you doing? When I read this text, I actually have enormous pity for Judas. Jesus's agenda just sometimes doesn't make sense. And I think that we are naive if we think that we're in a place where our trust in what Jesus is doing will never be challenged. But the other side of the coin is this. And I, and I borrowed this from Pastor Clay. I don't know if it's original to him, but I'll give him the credit. Uh, Pastor Clay told me uh, this week, great sin or great suffering creates an invitation to confront our lack of trust. That's the flip side of the coin when we're experiencing that lack of trust or that sin in ourselves. Great sin or great suffering creates an invitation to confront our lack of trust. After Peter sinned, and we'll talk about this here a little bit more, but Jesus has this almost confrontational moment with Peter. And he invites Peter back into a place of love and trust and vulnerability. There's a reconciliation that takes place. They confront Peter's lack of trust and Peter is restored. But Judas... Runs from that opportunity, literally with his life. He runs from the opportunity to confront his lack of trust, his failings with Jesus. Like, here's the thing if you can't trust Jesus with the circumstances of your life, if I can't trust Jesus with the life of my daughter, how can I ever trust him with my soul? But if I can trust Jesus with my soul, and I believe that I can, if I can trust Jesus with my eternal soul, then I can trust him fully in all of the other areas of life. Here's the thing about trust, right? Trust is built when it's stretched. So if you find yourself in a Judas and Peter kind of context, a place of fear or guilt or shame where your trust is being stretched, it's either, it's a fork in the road, it's either an opportunity for you to turn away from Jesus and to bear that on your, yourself, like I will take care of this on my own, I don't need to trust in Jesus, or it's an opportunity for you to turn back towards Jesus and stretch your trust, your faith in him and what he's doing. So that's the first thing they trusted. At the, in the end, it is revealed that Peter trusted Jesus differently with more trust than the lack of trust that Judas had. So they trusted Jesus differently. But secondly, they let, as a result of that differentiation and trust, they then let Jesus love them differently. It's, and we see this in Judas, but it's really hard to receive love from someone you don't trust. It's really hard to receive love from someone you don't trust even when they're actually loving you. Um, I've used this example before, but I have a dog named Penn. Uh, he is a standard poodle. And we got him when he was about a year, year and a half old. And he, had, uh, we, he was a rescue dog. And it became quite evident to us pretty early on that he was a Uh, was abused by a former owner, and in particular, we noticed it was men. So around children, he was great. Around women, he was great. The second that I would walk in the door, uh, walk in the room, or come home from work, he would immediately kind of growl. He'd start shaking, trembling, like he was terrified. I I couldn't pet him without his whole body literally just Trembling, shaking, there was something in his past that was traumatic. It became very, very evident. And even though I would try to love him, pet him, give him treats, whatever, he was unable to receive my love, my affection for him because he could not trust me. And it took, it has taken years for me to build up trust so that now when I call him, he'll actually come over and, he'll be, and he enjoys you know, being pet, enjoys getting a treat. It's taken years to build that trust. And now, because he trusts me, he can now receive the love that I give to him. And, and, and you know, this is true for us. Judas just didn't trust Jesus. And therefore, he didn't really let Jesus in in terms of receiving his love. And Judas loved Jesus, or Jesus loved Judas to his spiritual end. I mean, Judas was being shown love by Jesus, given a seat of honor, public, like a public affirmation and love. He, not only was he part of the 12, he's sitting right next to Jesus. Jesus is dipping the bread in the, the wine dip and giving it to him as a public expression of Jesus' love and affection for Judas. He was saying to Judas up to the very end, I love you. And Judas could not receive it. Even knowing that Jesus was innocent, knowing that Jesus loved him, he, he was not able to be vulnerable enough to let Jesus love him. And this is why Jesus says of Judas, and this is kind of my paraphrase, uh, this is why Jesus said of Judas, it would be better for someone to have never lived than to have experienced my love and rejected it. So tragic. After Judas betrayed Jesus, he says to the chief priests who arrested Jesus, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. And what he's doing is he's kind of hearkening back to the 10 commandments. And one of the 10 commandments was to not bear false witness against your neighbor. And what Judas is essentially saying is, I was a false witness against my neighbor. He's innocent and I said he was guilty. I gave a false testimony against my neighbor. And what Judas is saying is, I broke the law. I broke the law. But even in that, there's a kind of like sterile coldness to it versus what we see Peter experiencing. When Peter denies Jesus, it says that he went out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. He wept with a broken heart. See, Peter saw Jesus through a loving and relational lens that Judas didn't. There was a coldness in Judas, even in his regret. It makes me think of of, uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10, which says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. And in Judas's case, quite literally, that kind of worldly grief Produced not just a spiritual death, but even his physical death. Judas wasn't willing to trust God with his sin. He was trying to bear it on his own. He was unable to receive love and grace. He, he couldn't just go to a loving and gracious Jesus and, and repent. He was somehow unable to do that. We also do this all the time. Like, I don't know about you, but when you sin is the first thing you do when you sin is to run to the throne of grace and to say to Jesus, like, oh Lord, loving God, gracious God, I have sinned. Like, well, please welcome me back, right? I'm, I'm coming to you, gracious God. I've sinned against you. Um, I'm coming back to you though. Do we immediately do that? Or I don't know if you guys have ever done this. I, I used to do this all the time when I was, when I was much younger. And uh, I, would, I would say these prayers, I would sin, and then I would say this kind of a prayer. I'm sure you've never prayed this kind of prayer before, but I would pray and I would say, you know, God, I'm so sorry for doing that. I'll never do it again. Like anybody else ever pray that kind of prayer? I, Lord, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I promise I'll never do it again. And then next week, right, I'd be praying the same prayer. Lord, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I'll never do it again right? Lord, I know I messed up, but with my own willpower, I promise I'll never do it again. We're spiritually bypassing a loving and gracious God, right? Like, Lord, it's okay. I've got this on my own strength, on my own power. I've got this. And we're bypassing, just accepting the reality that we have a loving and gracious God who forgives us. Or maybe we don't spiritually bypass, maybe we bypass another way. Maybe we try to uh, numb it with pleasure or substances, alcohol, I don't know, something that just kind of numbs everything. Maybe we try to cover it up with some sort of mental distraction rather than covering it with the blood of Jesus. Or maybe we, we run from our, our sin, from our problems and try to escape that confrontation with a loving, gracious God. I, I, I've met, you've probably met people like this that literally like they just can't face the realities of their sin of their, or their situation or their context and they're constantly running, sometimes physically, like going from one church to another or one state to another, like they're constantly on the run, it seems like from, from themselves like Jonah like they can outrun dealing with a loving God for some reason we don't want to deal with a loving and gracious God for some reason we don't want to deal with a loving and gracious God we for some reason like Judas want to do it on our own terms for some reason now let me give you some good news and some bad news right have you ever had that conversation with somebody I've got good news and bad news. And, and typically when somebody says that to me, I'll say, give me the bad news first and then the good news, right? That's how I want, I want to end on something good. So I've got some, some good news and some bad news. I'll give you the bad news first. If you, like me, are in this situation where you're constantly kind of running or avoiding dealing with a loving and gracious God, here's the reality. You will never bypass your sin You will never cover your sin. You'll never outrun your sin. Judas couldn't even do it in death. And the bad news is that if you try to own your own mistakes and sin, you will be crushed under the weight of it. The good news or the gospel, which means the good news, the good news is this. You have a God who has given you a place of honor at his table. You have a God who has given you the bread dipped in the wine or laid down his life for you. And just like David, just like Jonah, just like the apostle Paul, wherever you are running to or whatever you're running from, he will find you because he loves you. Will you receive his love or will it be on your own terms? It makes me think of the, of the prodigal sons or the prodigal son, but it should be called the prodigal sons. And, and it didn't really, ma- like it, the, the father didn't really care about what happened with either of the sons yesterday. Like whatever they had done was in the past in terms of how the father looked at and loved his sons. And so he extended love to both of his sons, to both of them. And one who had honestly been the bigger mess up was able to receive the father's love and the other was somehow frustrated by the father's love. He couldn't receive it. He wanted to relate to the father somehow on his own terms. And so the question again that I have for you is, will you receive the father's love or will it be on your own terms? And then lastly, the third point is this, because they trusted Jesus differently and then because, as a result of that, because they let Jesus love them differently, as a result, they then loved differently. They loved differently. See, Judas's soul was so turned inward on himself that not only did he have no bandwidth to receive love, he then had no bandwidth to give love, to love anyone else. It led to Judas being in a loveless existence. But Peter, for all of his faults, ultimately trusted Jesus. He let Jesus love him. And then it shaped how Peter then went out to live and love others the rest of his life. In John 21, after Jesus had resurrected Jesus has a conversation with Peter on the banks of the Tiberias Sea. And this is that conversation. And and this is found in John 21. And um, Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And then Jesus said to him the third, the third time, Peter, do you love me? Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Do you see what Jesus was doing there? Three times he asked Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter declares that he did. And Jesus was saying this to Peter, you denied me three times, Peter, but I know that I love you and I know that you love me. I forgive you, I forgive you. And out of that forgiveness, out of that love that I have for you and that love that you have for me, Peter, I want you to go feed my sheep, to love others. And you, we can't miss this in, this in that text. This is what he was helping Peter understand, and this is what he's helping us understand. That their relationship, the relationship between Jesus and Peter, was not defined by Peter's failures, but by Jesus's love. It was not defined by Peter's failures, but by Jesus's love. And that is the question I have for you today. How do you receive God's love and give God's love? Are you fixated on your own failures towards Jesus or on your love for him and his love for you? is your relationship with God defined by what you do or is it defined on what he has done for you? To the degree that you understand God's love for you, not only will you be personally transformed, but you will then also be able to love others. So then the question becomes this, is your relationship with others your spouse, your friends, the way that you're relating to each other here, is that defined by a fixation on failures on what you do for one another or don't do for one another, or is it defined by a sacrificial love for each other? Verse 31, Jesus says that, This moment was when he was going to receive the most glory. He's referencing the cross. That should be absurd to us. That the cross becomes his glorious throne. That the crown of thorns becomes his glorious crown. Instead of royalty being on his left and right, there's two murderous thieves Instead of a ring in one hand and a scepter in the other, there's nails put through his hands. How can the greatest display of God's glory be in the shame of the cross? That doesn't make sense. But Jesus says that in some way, he was more glorified by trading in a throne room in heaven for a... Execution Hill and a cross on earth. Why? The glories of his grace. The glories of his love. God is most glorified. Jesus was most glorified when his love was most manifested, when his love was most revealed. And that means that then we glorify him most when we reflect that kind of sacrificial love. He says it in verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not if you are perfect, not if you are really successful, not if you know a lot about the Bible. No, it's, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, sacrificial love for one another. In his book, The Family Coach, author Dave uh, Simmons talks about a time in the early 90s when he took his kids to a mall. That's what people did in the 90s. They went to this mysterious place called (laughs) the mall. And uh, uh, nobody ever bought anything at a mall because it was too expensive. You would just kind of browse around and then go home. And that's why malls don't exist today. Um, so, so this father takes his kids in the early nineties to a mall and he had been teaching his kids about love is sacrifice. Love is sacrifice. And he was beginning to kind of wonder, is, is it even sinking in? Uh, he had two, two kids, a boy and a girl, and he was wondering, is this love, is sacrifice, is that even sinking in? And so, so they go to this mall, and there is an opportunity for his kids to learn that lesson, although it was admittedly completely unintentional. So they go into the mall, and inside the mall, there's a, a giant petting zoo right outside of the store that he has to go into. It's probably Radio Shack uh, is the store that he was going into. Right or Blockbuster or one of those other like '90s stores. So he's going to run an errand into some store, and his kids see this petting zoo, and they ask him, "Dad, can can we have some money to go to the petting zoo while you go inside the store to run your errand?" So he says, "Yes." So he gives them each a dollar to go to the petting zoo, and he goes inside his store. And about two minutes into his shopping, he realizes that his daughter uh, Helen has followed him into the store instead of going to the petting zoo. And, and it confused him because he knew that his daughter loved animals. And it was like, well, why did she choose to walk with, you know, me into the store instead of go enjoy the petting zoo? And so he asked her what was going on. And she said, well, daddy, it costs $2. So I gave Brandon my dollar. Love is sacrifice. And he writes, and I love this, he writes, it had become part of her. What do you think I did? Well, not what you might think. As soon as I finished my errand, I took Helen to the petting zoo, but we stood by the fence and watched Brandon petting and feeding the animals. Helen stood with her hands and chin resting on the fence and just watched. I had $2 burning a hole in my pocket. I never offered it to Helen, and she never asked for it. Love is sacrifice. Love always pays a price. Love always costs something. Love is expensive. When you love, benefits accrue to another's account. Love gives, it doesn't grab Helen gave her dollar to Brandon, and I wanted to follow through with her lesson. She knew she had to taste the sacrifice. I think probably most of us in this room don't understand how to love like Helen, much less like Jesus Jesus writes in verse 30, or spoke in verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now here's the thing, to love wasn't actually a new commandment. So what is Jesus saying when he says, I'm giving you a new commandment? What he's doing is he's ramping up our definition of what it means to love, because he says, Love as I have loved you. That's what made it new. With sacrifice, with cost, emptying ourselves. Jesus did that on the cross for us. He loved us with sacrifice. His body was broken for us. In a moment, the band's gonna come forward and and sing, And we will take a piece of the bread, which represents Christ's body broken for us, and we will take a piece of it and dip it in the wine or juice as your conscience permits. Let me go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that... um, we would be a people that reflect your sacrificial love. First, I pray that we would trust you and trust your love. And I pray that we would be able to receive your love. And then I pray that we would be a church of people that are defined here among us and in our community as people that have a love for one another, a sacrificial love for one another. Father, as we come forward to take communion, we remember that you have loved us in this this way. I am thankful that you loved us while we were yet enemies. Christ died for us. You loved us by sending your Son. And it is glorious. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to us. We cherish that. I pray that we would reflect that gospel reality to each other and to our community.